0: Beloved Neville Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1937 to 1940. Uh, He is most known for his policy of appeasement and for signing the Munich Agreement with Nazi Germany in 1938. Chamberlain promised his citizens, the citizens of the UK, peace in our time and told them to, quote, get a nice quiet sleep as a result of his capitulation to Nazi Germany. As we know from history, it didn't turn out well for him. The point is there are some enemies uh, with whom you cannot achieve true peace through truce, treaty, or detente. There are some enemies the only path to true peace is to fight. Winston Churchill succeeded Chamberlain from 1940 to 19. 19- 45, he said to his citizens, now is no time for false peace and phony comfort. And he declared war. And he specifically told his citizens this. He said, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. You ask, what's our aim? I can answer in one word. It's victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terrors. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Listen as I read verses 10 through 17. Our text this morning is short. It's first half of verse 17. But let's begin reading in verse 10 to make sure we understand the context of what God communicates to us here this morning through The Apostle Paul, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. "...against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace." In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing this morning. Please attend to it as such. Now, We are engaged in a spiritual war, and I understand at times it can seem to us that the enemy is so strong and powerful, and I am so weak and fainting, and I've been fighting ever since I've become a Christian, and I'm still fighting. Is there no end to this fighting? There are two answers, no and Yes. No, there is no end to this fighting now on this side of eternity, on the side of glory. And yes, there absolutely is an end to this fighting then on that side of glory, on that side as we are ushered into the presence of the Lord in eternity, if we are in Christ by his grace and mercy. Beloved, For this battle, for this war that we fight, we need God-forged, God-furnished, and even God-worn armor. Uh, We have covered already the belt and the breastplate, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And the shoes and the shield, the shoes of readiness and the shield of faith. There are two pieces, two elements left, the helmet and the sword. The helmet of salvation and the sword of of the spirit now when we look at these six god forged god furnished pieces of armor elements equipment they can be divided in different ways in one sense technically speaking it's kind of one four, one actually there are only four pieces of armor there aren't six pieces of armor the belt at the beginning technically isn't part of the armor the belt is what the Roman soldier would use to pull together and gather up his tunic and tuck it into his belt so that he would be prepared to fight. And then we have four pieces of armor, and the sword at the end isn't, again, technically a piece of armor. It's a weapon. So that's one way in which we can divide these six pieces of God-provided equipment. Or we can look at them as three and three. The first three elements, the first three pieces are fixed and fastened. And we even see that from the language in the text. Having girded your loins with the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of faith. Having shod your feet with the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. And the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes don't come off. When the soldier puts them on, he keeps them on. Even when he sleeps, he puts them on and keeps them on, which is what we are to do. With these. The next three elements, the shield, helmet, and sword, aren't fixed and fastened, but the soldier that is ready for battle will keep them close at hand so they are ready to be picked up and used at a moment's notice when it's time to fight. So again, we can look at these six pieces as one, four, one, or three, and three. The fifth piece, beloved, of God forged, God furnished equipment or armor is the helmet of salvation at the beginning of verse 17 Paul says and take the element of salvation and what we'll do right here at the beginning is we're just going to parse out and look at the three words there the take the helmet and the salvation the and the and of are important but we're going to look at those first three and What we look here is this is one more way when we look at this verb take, we see that this is, in a sense, something that tells us that another way in which we can divide these six pieces is four and two. The first four pieces are given to us with, and it's excuse the technical language for a second, with an adverbial participle. You'll see that with the little ing, taking, or excuse me, uh, having, 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 and then even the fourth one, taking the shield of faith but now he moves from these participles in other words those first four pieces of equipment come and flow from the command that you see at the beginning of verse 14 stand firm therefore then the next four come from that but now in verse 17 he gives a second direct command and he says take the helmet of salvation and it ties it in. It connects us with the stand firm in verse 14. There's an urgency here. Take this. And the word, the New American Standard, translates it take. It literally means to receive, accept. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as welcome or even believe. Believe. And extending the imagery, the physical imagery that Paul is using for the spiritual application, we understand that a soldier would receive the helmet out of the hand of his commanding officer. Beloved, so also you and I must receive the helmet of salvation from the divine warrior, who isn't just the one who forged and furnished the helmet, but who wore it himself. He is the divine warrior who wears the helmet of salvation as the worker of salvation and the bringer of salvation. And for this, we again go back to Isaiah 59, verse 17, speaking of God, the son, the second member of the Trinity. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation, the exact phrase we have here at the beginning of Ephesians 6, 17, and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. So, beloved, the picture God gives you and me here in Ephesians 6 is God is a divine warrior who brings who works salvation brings salvation and gives us the helmet of salvation so that we can put it on as his soldier now Paul says take the helmet the second word now what would the original Ephesian audience understand and what would come to their mind when they hear that word Helmet. Uh, this Greek word only appears twice in the New Testament, here in Ephesians 6 and in 1 Thessalonians 5. They would clearly understand this as the helmet of a Roman soldier. The Roman soldier uh, helmet was a bronze helmet fitted over an iron skull cap, which would be lined with leather or cloth. It would have cheek guards that would come down and it would even go back, not just the helmet on the head, but it would go down and protect the back of the neck and even go out and be supported by coming out onto the shoulders. And if you've seen pictures, it had a magnificent plume or crest coming out of the top of the helmet. So the, Roman, the helmet of the Roman soldier was first, fundamentally, and foremost protective, but it was also decorative. And there was a purpose even for that uh, from the protective standpoint. Again, the main purpose certainly it makes me think of some years back, I had a motorcycle riding friend when my beloved Marge and I were living in Redmond, Washington. And he said that he and his motorcycle riding community called helmets brain buckets. And I think the idea was everything else might get broken but the brain is still there. And I remember a few years ago, I was riding my mountain bike, a technical riding up around uh, Red Mountain and I wasn't paying attention and my head smacked into a tree branch. I um, And it cracked the helmet, but my head and brain was okay. So it is protective. And you see, the soldier wears the helmet first and foremost for protection when fighting. When there's danger, the soldier puts his helmet on. So, beloved, we are to take the helmet, put it on, and keep it on. So it is protective, but it is, as I indicated, it is decorative. There was a purpose even for those brilliant red plumes and crests. And the idea was the soldier would wear the helmet not just when fighting, but when marching. And when marching into battle, the helmet would instill fear in the heart of the foe. And then there was one other occasion besides fighting and marching. The Roman soldier would wear the helmet when parading in Roman cities with Roman citizens. So not only would the helmet, the decorative nature of the helmet, instill fear in the heart of the foe, it would inspire confidence in the heart of the of the friend. But now back in verse 17, Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. Take helmet, the third word we're focusing on here is salvation. And we can ask the question, is Paul talking about salvation from the penalty of sin when we're converted, when by God's grace and mercy we trust and believe in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone? Or is he talking about salvation from the power of sin and it is a both and it's yes it is is it past or present yes it is past present and future and we've seen this before remember the belt of truth a logical question to ask about the truth of the belt of truth is that the objective truth of the word of God or is that the subjective truth applied in the life of a believer and it's not an either or, it's a both and. It is both truth and truthfulness, and the breastplate of righteousness. Is the righteousness of the breastplate, the imputed righteousness of Christ that comes from outside of us? Or it is the practical righteousness of the godly man or the godly woman? And again, it's a both and. Now, here with the helmet of salvation, we understand Paul is writing to Ephesian believers. They are already saved. They already have salvation. But it is both a past and a present. And... As we go on, we'll see its future as well. And it is comprehensive and sweeping. When Paul talks about your helmet of salvation, he's talking about your election, your redemption, your justification, your sanctification, your glorification. This salvation that is a protective measure, a protective piece of the armor of God is salvation already received and salvation confidently expected in the heart and mind of the child of God. Now, what we'll do for the remainder of this morning, we'll have a threefold outline. And it may be quite familiar to many of you, and perhaps this threefold outline might be brand new to some as well. And the point here is this, beloved. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, as your Lord and Savior, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And you will be saved from even the presence of, of sin, And what Paul is doing here by invoking this helmet, this piece of armor, he's drawing our attention to the head, the mind, to our brain, our understanding, our thinking, our ability to grasp the truth and the righteousness and the gospel and the peace and the faith. Uh, turn for a moment back to Luke, just to give, I want to use three examples. I'm going to use Dr. Luke, Paul, and God himself when it comes to this dimension of the mind, the thinking, the brain, the cognitive process when it comes to salvation. Back in Luke, in at the beginning of verse 2, in our English Bibles, chapter 2, verse 1, Luke, when he is leading into the birth of Jesus, he says, Luke 2.1, now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, look over at chapter 3, the first two verses. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, beloved, what God is doing there through Luke what Luke is doing in his humanity as he is being superintended by God as he's blending together great historical details of place names and people that were right and they're accurate because, and even in the midst of where we read those verses and we saw that history and those names and those places, We also saw the tremendous gems of the seeds of the gospel truth of the child that would come and is to be born in fulfillment of prophecy even from the Old Testament. And what Luke wants his readers to understand is we need to use our mind to process these. We may have a very simple mind. We may have a very complex mind, but God wants us to use our mind to process these truths or Paul in Acts, Acts 17, verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. Or verse 17, same chapter. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And then in Acts 18, verse 4, he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Luke understood that God wants us to use our mind and that that's important of how to understand who God is, who we are, and how we may be made right with God. And it doesn't just start with Luke and Paul. God himself says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord, says Yahweh. Yahweh says, come, let us reason together. Beloved, it is staggering. Paul, Paul's exhortation to Timothy and part of Paul's delineation of the qualifications of an elder is to be of sound mind. Beloved, back here In the context of this spiritual war, this holy war in which you and I are engaged, we are engaged in a spiritual fight to the death. It is a battle of beliefs. We war against false religions that deceive the mind and damn the soul. And we fight for the true religion that informs the mind and saves the soul. So, The first part of our outline, beloved, is you have been saved from the penalty of sin. In the context of the helmet of salvation, the protective dimension of the helmet of salvation, Charles Hodge said, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact he is saved. Paul here in Ephesians, in the beautifully deep and rich doctrine that Paul used in the first three chapters, even in chapter one, laying out the doctrinal foundation. At the beginning of the letter, Paul lets us know that the Father, lets you know the Father purposed your salvation. The Son procured your salvation and the Spirit protects your salvation, he says the Father chose you the Son redeemed you and the Spirit seals you your salvation beloved was administered by God the Father it was accomplished by God the Son and it is applied it was applied and is applied by God the Spirit your You haven't merely received something new as we go through Ephesians. You have become something new. You individually have become something new, and we collectively have become something new. The helmet, beloved, of your salvation is a salvation that you've already received. It is your election, your redemption, your justification. And Part of the protective nature of this is by understanding, for example, your justification, the helmet of salvation applied by you. When you understand justification, you understand that the justification that God talks about through Paul in Romans and in Galatians, for example, is a point in time. It's when God, the holy judge, declares the unjust just, when he pardons the guilty by virtue. Of Christ taking your place and that protects you from for example the heresy of the Roman Catholic understanding of justification which is a process or it helps you understand that the righteousness that Paul talks about in Philippians 3.8 a righteousness from outside of ourselves, it's an imputed righteousness it's only the perfect righteousness of Christ which is credited to our account rather than the infused righteousness of Roman Catholicism, for example, which says it takes the righteousness of Christ and it infuses that righteousness with a little glimmer of righteousness of the unsaved man or woman. Or the helmet protects you against the error of Arminian thinking that you could a true child of God could lose his or her salvation. And the list goes on and on. And I will say this, beloved, I will say this, friend, here this morning, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting Christ alone by faith alone, if you're not a Christian, understand you have to receive the helmet of salvation from the divine armor bearer before you can even put it on for the battle. What does this look like? I had a wonderful, I had wonderful fellowship all week long with different people on different days. I had a wonderful time of fellowship with Ben Seacott around lunch on Friday. And Ben was sharing with me his, evan- his Mill Avenue Evangelism ministry that takes place on Thursday night, the night before. And Ben was sharing with me that he was talking to a young man and that he basically, Ben, laid out for him that there are only two religions in the world. There is a religion of do and the religion of done. The religion of do. there are many, many multi-religions of do of man trying to earn his salvation as opposed to the one true religion of done, which is the finished once for all sacrifice of Christ. This is what Ben shared with him. Friend, if you're here this morning, there are only two religions. There are only two ways even for God's justice to be satisfied. There is the Everlasting punishment of the sinner in hell or there is the effectual substitution of the Savior by which a sinner can be forgiven of his or her sin and be with God forever and ever with Christ in heaven. You either experience temporary pleasure in exchange for eternal suffering or you experience temporary suffering in exchange for eternal pleasure, the eternal joy of heaven. Charles Spurgeon. I love his story, his testimony. From his early childhood, Spurgeon was heavily burdened by his own awareness of his sin and his absolute inability to satisfy the righteous law of God. He had heard the gospel message that Jesus had died for sinners, but he saw no application of this for himself. Uh, Spurgeon entered a school in the town of Newmarket, England in 1849 at the age of 15, both as a student and as a part-time teacher. He testifies that he attended church after church there in Newcastle to see if he could hear something and understand something that would help him deal with his sin. He later related he heard pastors preach on a variety of themes, but they didn't address his basic spiritual question. Spurgeon said, what I wanted to know was, how can I get my sins forgiven? And they never told me that. There was an outbreak of fever uh, in Christmas, that Christmas season. and It temporarily closed the school that Spurgeon was at, so we went home for the season. One Sunday morning in early January, he was off and making his way to one church when a fierce snowstorm came in. And he instead went to a primitive Methodist chapel, which was closer to his home. He said there was only about a dozen people in attendance, and he sat in the very back. And this is what Spurgeon said, quote, The minister didn't come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit and began to preach. Now it is well the preacher should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. (laughs) <laughs> Spurgeon had a way with words, but with a point in mind, he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say, uh, according to Spurgeon. The man announced and read the scripture text for his impromptu sermon isaiah forty five verse twenty two and the King James version says, "Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth." Uh, the simple preacher, according to sermon to uh, Spurgeon said this he said my dear friends and I'm not going to try to imitate the uh, Essex uh, accent that he apparently had but the simple man said my dear friends this is a very simple text so this is a preacher the simple Methodist preacher preaching to Spurgeon and the people the text says look now looking don't take a great deal of pains it ain't lifting your foot or your finger it's just look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and you can still look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, many of ye, are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Then, According to Spurgeon, the good man followed up in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. This is speaking on behalf of Christ. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Spurgeon continues, these are Spurgeon's words, when he had gone on to that about length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then, Spurgeon says, he looked at me at the end of the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, young man, you look miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance, However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. The simple preacher continued, and you'll be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you'll be saved. Then, Lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, according to Spurgeon. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. I don't know what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like when the brazen serpent was lifted up and the people only looked and they were healed, so it was with me. I'd been wanting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and simple faith which looks alone to him. End quote. Friend, look unto Christ. Look and live. The helmet of salvation. Ephesians six seventeen. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are beloved in the beloved being saved from the power of sin you see sin makes us guilty and sin makes us dirty we are saved from the penalty of sin and we are saved from the pollution of sin God takes away the guilt of sin so that it won't condemn us and God takes away the power of sin so that it won't rule us you see salvation is not improvement Salvation is total transformation. You are a new man or a new woman. You were born again. You have a new mind, a new will, a new heart, new relationship, new power, new wisdom, understanding, love, desire, citizenship, family of God, being in the one reconciled new humanity. How wonderful was your rescue from sin? How much more wonderful is your adoption into the beloved? You were a child of wrath. Now you are a child of God by rebirth and by adoption. Redemption is beautiful and wonderful being bought out of the slave market to sin. Redemption gives you a new freedom and a new standing in life. Adoption gives you a new family and a new standard of living. Beloved, the helmet of salvation is your salvation being received. It's your sanctification. You were placed in Christ at a point of time and you're going, being transformed from glory to glory all the way to the end. The 20th century reform theologian John Murray was asked one time, what's the difference between preaching and a lecture? The difference is this, he said, preaching is a personal, passionate plea. And he also said to all believers, believers that are blessed to understand God's sovereignty and salvation, he said this, the passion for missions is quenched when we lose sight of the grandeur of the gospel. It is a fact that many, persuaded as they rightly are of the particularism of the plan of salvation, have found it difficult to proclaim the full, free, and unrestricted overture of the gospel of grace. They've labored under inhibitions arising from fear that in so doing they might be impinging upon the sovereignty of God and his saving purposes and operations. And the result is that though formally assenting to the free offer of the gospel, they lack freedom in the presentation of its appeal and of its demand. Beloved, by way of application, go into the world and declare to your family members, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your fellow students, look unto Christ and live. Look and live. The simple truth of the gospel. So, You have been saved, beloved, from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And even those first two points do kind of even bring in the dimension of the dual aspects of the salvation, the already received salvation and the salvation being worked out. Lastly, you will be saved from even the presence of sin. As a child of God, on this side of Glory, You're like a diamond, crystal white within, but still uncut, showing only glimmers of brilliant flashes from the reflecting facets. But God tells you through the pen of the Apostle John, 1 John 3, verse 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Or more to the point of this point. The second appearance, I mentioned earlier that the word helmet only appears twice in the New Testament, in Ephesians six seventeen, The other appearance is in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers. He says, let us be sober, even pointing to the mind, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So you have that combination of helmet and salvation. That's the second appearance of the word helmet. And he introduces the beautiful dimension of hope, which is part and parcel and embedded in the (laughs) salvation itself. And this isn't some airy-fairy wishful thinking. This is a certain promise, God's certain promise of solid joy and lasting treasure and assurance 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life, hope, and assurance. Beloved, your salvation, the helmet of salvation that protects you, is both a present possession and a future expectation. If you have your Bible open to Ephesians, go back to Ephesians chapter. One And look at the inheritance by way of reminder in verse 11, in this long, beautiful, rich sentence from the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. In verse 11, Paul there says, Also we having obtained an inheritance, or verse 14, talking about the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And then finally, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Beloved, the inheritance, the hope, the assurance that you are a child of God, you are a joint heir of Christ before God the Father, before the holy, righteous God the Father. So, beloved, the helmet of salvation that Paul commands you, that God commands you and me with an urgency to take, to receive, to accept, to welcome, is your salvation, which is confidently expected. It's your glorification. Again, as we go through those beautiful epics of salvation, we see the justification redemption the conversion that's all part of what is in the past the sanctification is taking place right now and the glorification is where you will be saved from even the very presence of sin beloved what this means for you and i is that monday is coming and with all the temptations accusations insinuations of the enemy take the helmet of salvation if you don't have the helmet of salvation on this morning you will be defeated tonight I mentioned that earlier with the shield of faith and that defeat might not even come to tonight not even wait to come until tonight it might be in the car ride home or this afternoon but beloved trust unreservedly and this is a way in which we can kind of encapsulate or understand what he means by take the helmet of salvation trust unreservedly in the once for all sacrifice of Christ and all that it entails on for your blessing and on your behalf. Everything we've talked about before, and the, the deliverance from even the power of sin and even the fear of death that the author of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter two. Be like Newton, who said, I am a great sinner, but God is a great Savior. Or the prophet Isaiah Isaiah 26, verse 3. Isaiah cries out to God and says, You keep the one whose mind is stayed upon you in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Let me read that again. That's a beautiful Old Testament verse that flows right out of or right into take the helmet of salvation. God, you keep the one whose mind is stayed upon you in perfect peace. Because he or she trusts in you. This means let war come. Let pestilence come. Let all hell break loose. The world forces of darkness that we see in Ephesians 6.12, the despots, let them break loose. There's nothing, beloved, that can separate you from the eternal love of God. There's nothing that can prevent you from the summing up of all things in Christ Jesus that Paul wrote back again in Ephesians in earlier chapters so that we can say with David, the psalmist, Psalm 140, verse 7, O Lord, my Lord, Yahweh, my Adonai, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The epistle to the Hebrews is nothing in a sense but an extended commentary on this phrase that we were looking at. Take unto you the helmet of salvation. The doctor continued. He said the Jewish Christians were weary. They were tired. They were persecuted and they were tempted. Everything seemed to be against them. And what Dr. Jones said, as he says, what it means is the devil does succeed at times in persuading us to become so preoccupied with the details of the Christian life that we forget the grand truth covering the whole. We're so concerned about the trees that we miss the wood. We're so immersed in the local tactics, we forget the great campaign. We're so keenly aware of the heat and the burden of the day, we forget who we are. We forget what we're destined for, end quote. That's why, for example, beloved, the author of Hebrews, hope is a great theme. Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 12, the author says, we desire that each one of you realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises and then same chapter verses 18 and 19 we may have so that we may have strong encouragement we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us this hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope that is both sure and steadfast. Beloved, the hope of the salvation that you in Christ can and should and must confidently expect. Hope turns light on in the darkness. Hope brings joy into the sorrows of life. Hope introduces life even into a scene of death. And beloved, in a word, your salvation is nearer to you than the day you believe. That is the helmet of salvation. And I'll close with one last quote from Spurgeon, which kind of ties in to what we, how we began with the wrong thinking of Neville Chamberlain and even the secular dimension of Winston Churchill. Spurgeon says this, If you tell me when God permits a Christian to lay aside his armor, I'll tell you when Satan leaves off his temptation. Like the old knights in wartime, we must sleep with helmet and breastplate on, buckled on, for the arch deceiver will seize our first unguarded hour to make us his prey. May the Lord keep us watchful in all seasons and give us final escape from the jaw of the lion and the paw of the bear. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer lord god we praise you and thank you lord we thank you for our salvation how great how wonderful how comprehensive how sweeping how eternal how how magnificent how in some sense incomprehensible with our finite minds the grandeur and the wonder and the joy And the amazing blessing of the salvation, Lord Jesus, which you purchased, which you bought, for which you suffered on our behalf. May we drink deep of these great truths. May we grow in our understanding and thankfulness and realization and ownership of these truths. And may we be used by you to bring the great news of the gospel of peace to a lost and dying world. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.